Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And as you clicked on this episode, you likely noticed that the title for this conversation is Spurgeon's Forgotten Sabbatarianism. And that is the title of our brother's newly released book. Uh, The author is Dr. Brandon Ray, and we have the privilege of talking with him today. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ray. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yes, we are uh, also very much looking forward to this conversation. As we mentioned in our little introduction there, uh, our podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. Of course, Spurgeon had access to this document, and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, some of the theology that's contained in chapter 22 of uh, the Second London Confession. But before we jump right into the Sabbath and what Spurgeon understood about the Sabbath, brother, we have uh, never had the privilege to uh, talk with you on our show. I got the privilege to meet you, I believe, last year at the Founders Midwest Conference. Mm-hmm. It's a great joy to uh, be with you and your family. Uh, but for our listeners who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor here in Kirksville, Missouri, which is in northeastern Missouri. We're about 30 minutes from the Iowa state line. We're three hours from St. Louis, Kansas City, and Des Moines. And it's uh, the hub of the area. It's a lot of rural agricultural. Uh, we also have a, a college, Truman State University, and a medical school, A.T. Still. And uh, I pastor a, a Reformed Baptist church. I have been here for about eight years. It was a revitalization. When I came, we had uh, an average attendance in the, about 22. And uh, my wife was the youngest person. Uh, but just focused on uh, preaching God's word and uh, loving the people. And God has uh, caused our numbers to grow in, in, in ways that we couldn't have thought or, or even asked. And so we are really good, solid foundation. We had a business meeting yesterday and uh, just praise God for his faithfulness to us. Uh, We are also, as as a church, a part of the Spurgeon Baptist Association of Churches. And uh, I serve on the board there as we try to collectively come together. Uh, The church that hosts the Founders Midwest Conference, where we met at Austin, uh, that's one of the churches in our association, too. But about uh, year 2017, I uh, started doctoral studies at Midwestern in Kansas City. And of course, they have the Spurgeon Library. And it was through that process that I uh, stumbled upon his Sabbatarianism and realized no one's written anything about it. And yet it is everywhere. It is a thread that runs through all of his writings and people will be shocked by this. And in 2021, I was able to finish my dissertation and pass and graduate. And then uh, over the last year, I've been working with Founders Press uh, to uh, get it updated and ready for publication. And uh, it's now available uh, and being shipped uh, for everyone who wants to to purchase a copy and be able to see what Spurgeon said. Well, Dr. Ray, it is a delight to have you on the Covenant podcast today. We're looking forward to diving into the weeds of our conversation about Spurgeon's Sabbatarian convictions, and I'm, I'm definitely wanting to get a copy of your book, so I'm uh, really grateful for your work to that end. But before we get too far into our conversation on, on Spurgeon and the Sabbath, um, I understand that you're going to be teaching a class for Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in the near future. Maybe you can share a little bit about uh, what that class will entail and when it will be accessible for enrollment. I'm sure we have some some listeners here who are either students of the seminary or uh, maybe prospective students of the seminary, and this could be a good chance to whet their appetite for a course that you're uh, going to be teaching in the near future. Yeah, thank you. It will be a modular class over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we'll meet three days, uh, eight hours each day, so you'll get 24 hours of Spurgeon. And of course, uh, part of the class, you'll uh, be required to read my book. And that is the basis for which the class is based. But don't think that it just if you just read the book, then you'll get everything out of it that you can. Because I'm going to go into more depth and also add some things that I've come across since uh, I finished my dissertation. 
Well, the first day, we'll mostly get into history. Uh, we're going to look at English Sabbath wars that took place in the 1600s and moving forward. <clears throat> I'll look at Spurgeon's main themes in his life. Also, uh, what did he do every Sunday? What did he do when he was a, a child at his grandparents' house? Uh, what did he do when he was at Water Beach, uh, young and, and his pastorate uh, for two years? What did he do when he was in London? And when he was on vacation in France, uh, how did his Sabbath days look? What did he do? What did he do? What did he focus on? Uh, so that's what we'll be looking at there. And then we're going to spend uh, probably seven or eight sessions just looking at chapter 19 of the law of God as the basis for his Sabbatarianism. How did he come to that? And we'll compare and go through each paragraph of chapter 19 and compare it to what Spurgeon said and show that he held to it. You hold to the threefold view of the, of the law of God. And then finally, the last day, we'll, uh, well, we'll also talk uh, about his uh, covenant theology, his understanding of church and state relations, because I mean, that's important with the judicial law. He wasn't a theonomist, but he also believed that the, the state uh, is under God's authority. And then we're going to talk about uh, uh, Christian liberty from chapter 21, uh, because that's an important part of the law of God. And one of the things that people don't know is that he was a teetotaler. Uh, later in his life, he came to the conviction uh, to not drink alcohol. Now, he didn't force that upon any, everyone else, but he just said, you know, out of the love for people because of how bad drunkenness is in our country, uh, to encourage people to be sober, that way they would have uh, right faculties to hear the gospel and possibly be saved. Uh, he encouraged others to be a teetotaler. And then finally, in the last day, we'll talk about how uh, the Sabbath was an important question when the 1689 assembly came together in London. They, they spent a, a whole, a, a, a lot of time talking about whether or not the Sabbath it, it should be upheld. And they came to the conclusion, yes. And they were also grieved by how many people were not keeping the Sabbath uh, in their time period. And then we'll get into uh, issues, uh, looking, going through chapter 22, paragraph 7 and paragraph 8 how the day has changed from Saturday to Sunday uh, because of Christ's resurrection from the dead and how Spurgeon believes that uh, works of piety, necessity, and also mercy. And then we'll end it talking about it being a day of joy. Uh, so there's going to be a lot uh, that people haven't thought about with Spurgeon. So we're, you're going to get a good overview over the confession of, of chapters 19 and 22, 6 and 7, and how Spurgeon uh, agreed with it, promoted it, and lived it out. Oh, that's great. Thank you for taking some moments to uh, give a preview of that upcoming class that you're going to be teaching for Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We would encourage anybody that's interested in taking that class with you, uh, either for credit if you're a student or auditing that class if you're not a student, to head over to cbtseminary.org uh, and benefit from Dr. Ray's teaching on this subject. Uh, Dr. Ray, this next question that I'm about to ask you is a little bit of a softball to throw at you, uh, and I presume that you'll crank on this easy softball question. Uh, did Spurgeon affirm the Christian Sabbath? Uh, did he affirm that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath? And uh, if so, how do we know that he believed this? Well, based upon what I previously said, you know that he did. And there are many ways that we can prove it. First, he uh, republished the Second London Confession of Faith in 1855, and he committed it to the broader Christian community, and then he also committed it to his own church as a great place for Christian doctrine and instruction. Having said that, Spurgeon uh, wouldn't be considered a strict uh, adherent to the Second London. There are some things that he disagrees on. But this was not one of them. Like one example where he disagree would be on uh, of oaths and vows that he thinks we shouldn't keep oaths today based upon uh, Matthew, was it six with the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which that would go against what the confession said. But on the law of God, on the on the, the Christian Sabbath, he definitely upholds it. Now, he doesn't have a. He, he doesn't have one sermon where he just focuses on the Sabbath, like Exodus 20 on the fourth commandment or Deuteronomy 5. It is throughout his 
writings and it just keeps popping up over and over and over again and that's how i stumbled upon this uh, topic so for example he would preach uh conviction upon sinners and here's just one quote from uh from the 1850s where he would say weary sinner hellish sinner thou who are the devil's castaway reprobate prof profligate harlot robber thief adulterer fornicator drunkard swearer sabbath breaker so what do you notice there uh, he groups these sins that we would say is, is sins you know being a harlot a prostitute being a thief committing adultery uh, having um, relations outside marriage getting drunk swearing and we would say all those things are wrong and, you know, breaks the second part of the law of the Ten Commandments, the, the second table. But then he throws in Sabbath breaker. And when I read that, I thought, I, I don't, I haven't heard preaching like this before. That he would consider that to be a sin, to break the Sabbath and to not honor God's day. And what was interesting is that he is the context in which he lived. When we think about 150 years ago, we probably just assume everyone kept the Sabbath. Everyone thought the Sabbath was, was what we needed to do. But that was not the case at all. And just to give you some history, there were two revolutions that were taking place uh, before Spurgeon and during Spurgeon's life that created a, a groundswell to uh, keep the Sabbath again. Now, Spurgeon was born in uh, 1834. He died in 1892. So the first revolution was the French Revolution in 1789. And this that, that's just 20-some miles across the channel from England. And what happened in the French Revolution? The king and his wife were executed. They were killed. And then you had... Uh, the secularists take control, and it just went downhill. And then finally, you had Napoleon come to part to to unite everyone. And then Napoleon goes to war for about 15 years until finally Britain and the other uh, countries are able to uh, take him off uh, and and finally have him be put into exile for good after he came back for 100 days in 1815. So this was something that that the elites and in Great Britain were really concerned about. Is this going to come over here? Well, the fires of revolution come to England and now the king is no more. Now uh, you have this overthrow of, of the uh, Church of England. You have all this chaos that's taking place. The second revolution was the Industrial Revolution, uh, which uh, really began in, in, in Britain, where you're, you're having through factories and the ability to produce at a hard, large level and scale um, items. And that was completely changing the life of these people because what used to be agricultural and rural, now people are moving into the cities like London and are living in conditions that are quite different and are working sun up to sun down six days a week and sometimes even working on, on Sunday. And so because of this, this was wearing people down, it was creating uh, a tender for possibly revolution because people didn't uh, like the working conditions and what was taking place. So it's in the context of these two things that in the 1820s, you have this movement begin among uh, uh, the Anglicans and then other Protestants join in of we need a Sabbath. We need to promote the Sabbath again. We need to have the Lord's Day so that these people will go to church they won't ha have to go to work and they will hear God's word and that will produce good citizens. And so then you have people in the elite who are uh, promoting this as well. You even had uh, committees coming before parliament in the 1830s asking about these questions uh, to, in order to train people on how to live. Now Spurgeon, he, he got in the midst of this. But his was not more cultural reasons to help to produce a good society. His was theological as far as why he was wanting to do this. 
So you have on one hand, you have this, uh, this taking place. But then on the other hand, you have people who are saying, no, 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 no. The Sabbath is boring. The Sabbath robs man of his only day to have fun. And uh, this was another Charles who promoted this. That was Charles Dickens. I actually quote from him in my book. and uh, one of his books, he gives this portrayal of the uh, English Sabbath as everything's closed up and the hardworking man has to look out his window and can't do anything. And so you had people on that side who were trying to promote the opening of museums. Well, on man's one day off, he should be able to go to the museum and have, have fun. Those who don't have to work every day, they can go to the museum Monday through Saturday, but these hardworking lower class people can't do that. They even had uh, lectures uh, to try to take up the time of uh, church. So they, they were scheduled during church services to pull people away. And so these are debates that kept going back and forth until the 1890s, 1900s, and then finally the Sabbatarians lose. So it's in that context that Spurgeon plants his flag that, no, the Christian Sabbath is theological. It is God's word. The fourth commandment continues to abide, and we uh, need to promote people to do this. And uh, theologically, he gets this from, one, his understanding of the law of God. So he has a, a threefold view of the law, that you have the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. And that the moral law is summarized by the Ten Commandments, and that the fourth commandment, being a part of the Ten Commandments, uh, is is eternal. It 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 doesn't have a start date and an end date. It hasn't ended with the old covenant because it supersedes the old covenant. It was included in it, but it also continues after it, and it gives us guidance for how we are to live. And this is seen in the creation ordinance. With uh, Genesis 2, let me just give you a, a quote from him. Spurgeon writes, And yet the Sabbath had not been instituted according to the law, which proves that its foundation lay deeper and earlier than the promulgation of the Ten Commandments. It is bound with the essential arrangement of time since creation. So he's saying when, when we come on the scene in Exodus 20, that wasn't the, the when the Sabbath was established. It began at creation. God worked for six days. He rested on the seventh. And that the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath wasn't made for Israel. Man, Gentiles, and, Jew, and Jews. It was made for all people of all time and all places. And because of that establishment in the garden, it continues now for us. And then with Christ... The day changes from Saturday as being the day of, observ of observance to Sunday. And this is in keeping with the uh, Second London Confession, uh, chapter 22, paragraph 7. I just want, to, want you to hear Spurgeon make the argument. He said, The first day of the week commemorates the resurrection of Christ, and following apostolical example, we have made the first day of the week to be our Sabbath. He also says, we gather together on the first rather than upon the seventh day of the week because redemption is even a greater work than creation and more worthy of commemoration. And because the rest which follow creation is far outdone by that which ensues upon the completion of redemption. So you see the symbolism here. The first day of the week, we are, are stopping and we are worshiping that Christ has been raised from the dead. We're worshiping that Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, that his work of redemption has been finished, that we, he's not standing up in the temple. He's not, he's not having to do more and more and more, more sacrifices, more things, in order to atone for our sins. He has done it. And he was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. So the apostles met on the first day of the week, as we see in 1 Corinthians 16, Acts 20, uh, John 20, elsewhere, and that is the Lord's Day. And if we are going to commemorate creation, how much more should we commemorate the redemption of our souls? So these are uh, our theological elements for which uh, Spurgeon based the Christian Sabbath and our obligation to 
I set aside our normal cares in order to gather together as a people and to also have private exercises of religion. Now, that's very helpful, Dr. Ray. A very robust and clarifying perspective on, on Spurgeon's view of the Sabbath and even the historical context that undergirded uh, the formulation of his convictions and even the articulation of those convictions from Scripture. And as many of our listeners will know, as we just continue to plumb the depths here of, of the, the Sabbath, discussions surrounding this topic will often venture into the category distinctions of works of piety, works of necessity, works of mercy. Um, Dr. Ray, how, do you, how did Spurgeon affirm these distinctions? Did he affirm these distinctions? Where, where do these categories fit into Spurgeon's understanding of the Lord's Day? Yes, he... He used those terms, and the best way to see that is in his commentary on the book of Matthew. And there's a PDF online, so you can just type in Spurgeon commentary on Matthew, pull it up, and go to chapter 12. If you remember, chapter 12 is when Jesus and his disciples are going through the field, and his disciples are taking uh, the seeds and eating them. And the Pharisees come at them and they're breaking the Sabbath. And it's in this section that he lays out what the Second London says uh, of this three categories. So we think of the Sabbath typically, what we what, what should we not do? What are the prohibitions? And he speaks of that in his work. But what are we to do? It's not a day of inactivity. To summarize Spurgeon, we rest for our, from our normal labors to labor for the Lord. And so what are the things that we should be seeking and doing? Let me give you just some, uh, some quotes from him. First, works of piety. Now, we would summarize works of piety as uh, preaching, uh, coming together to worship God, praying, reading the Bible. So there's corporate piety. Then there's individual in the home, family worship, uh, spending time reading a good Christian book. He says this uh, from his commentary on Matthew 12. As the substance is greater than the shadow, so is our Lord greater than the temple or any or all ceremonial laws. And his sanction overrules all the interpretations of the law, which asceticism or superstition may thrust upon us. Works of piety are lawful on the Sabbath. So he uses that phrase. And if you remember, Jesus in Matthew 12 points to the fact that priests work every day. They had to give sacrifices in the morning and in the evening. And this is one of the things that people will say, well, you, you believe in the Christian Sabbath? Well, but you work on the Sabbath. Preachers work on the Sabbath, so you're a hypocrite. <laughs> like, no, uh, you're not understanding this distinction. Jesus points out that that didn't break the Sabbath for the priests to work on it. In the same way, it doesn't break the Sabbath for us to lead people to worship God. Uh, you're, on, you're misunderstanding. You're categorizing the Sabbath as inactivity instead of setting aside normal labors to focus on God. The second one is works of necessity. And he talks about this too, about how if you're animal gets caught in a pit, you don't wait till Monday for to get it out. No, you go in there and, and pull it out. Uh, in the same way, we maybe have to shower, we have to cook, we, we have to go to put air in the tire because we find out that air came out over the night and we, we want to go to church and worship God. And those are all fine. He says this, as men excuse any breach of manners necessitated by the pressure of hunger, so doth the Lord permit any ceremonial point of law to give way to his mercy and to man's evident necessity. The law of the Sabbath was never meant to compel starvation to the hungry men any more than the law of the house of God and the showbread. Works of necessity are lawful on the Sabbath. So in Matthew 12, Jesus says, uh, remember David and his men didn't have food, and so they uh, go to the priest and they say, we're hungry, we're starving, can you give us something? He's like, well, all we have is the bread that, that's holy, that's been set aside for, for, for worship of God. And the priest gave him the bread. Now, technically, he shouldn't have done that, 
But what that was showing is giving David and these men food to meet their basic needs was more important than whether it was holy or common. And in the same way, uh, works of necessity are good and important on the Sabbath and should be done. Now, the question always is, what's necessity and what's not? And those those are details to get into uh, at a later point. But necessity is an important work that should not be thwarted. Finally, works of mercy. This is where Jesus really gets into trouble, as you read in Matthew 12, because what does he do? He heals a man on the Sabbath. How dare you heal someone on the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath was made to do good, not to do nothing. So Spurgeon comments on this. He says, our Lord's argument was overwhelming. One form of human kindness being proved to be right, the whole class of beneficent actions is omitted, and it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. One wonders that anybody ever thought otherwise. So what we see here is that Spurgeon believes Jesus is not creating a new law. Instead, he is confronting the Pharisees' wrong interpretation and application of the laws that are already on the books. They have created this distortion of the Sabbath where it's one of walking on eggshells. I don't want to do anything wrong instead of moving forward with what should I do to serve God? And that's works of piety. We're here to worship God and worship God in our home. Works of necessity. There are things that we have to do. We, we have to feed the cows. My, my father has a bottle calf. You have to feed him every day. <laughs> that, that's the loving thing to do, and that's fine. And then works of mercy. Uh, we need doctors. We need nurses. We need people who work at nursing homes. We need uh, firefighters to come. Uh, we need all these things and all these people to do these jobs, and that, that is good and appropriate and does not break the Sabbath. Hmm. Hmm. That's very helpful. Um, with these categories of uh, the distinctions between works of piety, necessity, and mercy, you begin to uh, make some applications of um, things that can be worked out by way of application on the mm -hmm. Sabbath. But uh, I want to delve a little bit further into that, uh, asking you what we know of Spurgeon's application of the Sabbath. So what did he teach concerning things like worldly talk, worldly activities, uh, prohibitions of worldly talk, worldly activities. Can you uh, lead us in a discussion on this subject? Yeah, first with worldly talk, he, he certainly sees that we should encourage our conversation to be directed towards the Lord. And he even admits uh, in one of his sermons, he says, it is not always that all Sunday talk is Sabbath talk. Not always that we converse as we should upon the things of God. We are, many of us, blameworthy here. So he admits that. But then he also, elsewhere, he gives an illustration of a positive way that uh, focusing on the Lord in our conversations can lead to spiritual good. So he tells a story of uh, people who have gathered for Sunday dinner after, after the morning service. And they're having chit-chat, small talk. And then in the midst of that, one person says, what will happen to us? Will we go to heaven or will we go to hell? And that one question completely redirects, redirects the conversation to where they start talking about eternal things. And Spurgeon comments that it was through that conversation and that term that one of the people who was there, who was present, came to know the Lord because it impressed upon them eternal matters. And, and where am I going to go? Am I going to go to heaven or go to hell? So that's worldly talk. As far as other activities, I mean, there are a lot of things that, that can be said. But in my book and what we'll go through in my class is all these Sabbath controversies in Spurgeon's life. And I just want to talk about a few of those. Uh, in order to whet the appetite. I begin my book by talking about 
his decision to leave the Surrey Garden Music Hall in 1859. Now let me give you some background here. So Spurgeon came to London in 1854. The church uh, was on hard times. Uh, it may, may have held like 1,200, and you're, you're apparently getting 100 people show up. It wasn't like how it used to be under John Rippon or John Gill. So when Spurgeon comes, uh, God uses him to bring uh, great life to the church, and people come and flock to hear him. And so, and very quickly, they, they realize they need to expand the building. So they go and expand the building, and for the meantime, they meet elsewhere. They come back, and it's still not big enough. <laughs> so then they decide, we need to build a completely new building, and that becomes the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where it could hold uh, five to 6,000 people. So in the meantime, uh, they still meet at uh, New Park Street for Sunday evening services, but in the morning, they rent out the Surrey Garden Music Hall, which was an entertainment facility, and Spurgeon really took some heat for holding services to our holy God to an entertainment facility, but uh, he didn't see any issues with that. So they're having these services, they are meeting, uh, they're having maybe 10,000 people show up. It's in a different part of the, of the town of, of London, so they're being, being able to draw in people who normally wouldn't hear the gospel. And then in 1859, in December, he decides, we're going to leave. And we're going to go to Exeter Hall, which was used by the Protestants. And it could only hold maybe three, maybe 4,000 people. Because the Metropolitan Tabernacle wasn't finished yet, so they still had to find another facility. So the question is, why did he do that? Well, here's why. The owners of the Surrey Garden Music Hall had decided they wanted to make more money. So they were going to rent out the facility, not in the day when Spurgeon was using it, but Sunday evening. It would not conflict with uh, the meeting in the, in the morning, because in the evening they are back at New Park Street. It would, have, it would not interrupt anything with Spurgeon and the worship of God. But Spurgeon, on principle, said, I am not going to rent from a entertainment theater that breaks the Sabbath. Uh, in fact, here's what he wrote from a letter about why he decided to leave. He says, giving the background, on two occasions before, as our friends are aware, it was proposed to open this place in the evening. So that's the Surrey Garden Music Hall. And I was then able to prevent it by the simple declaration that if so, I should withdraw. So he threatened them twice. If, if you do this, I'm going to withdraw. And they said, okay, we, we won't do it. He continues, that declaration suffices not at this time. So the third time they said, okay, you can leave. We're going to continue to do it. And you should therefore perceive that I should be a craven to the truth, that I should be inconsistent with my own declarations, that, in fact, my name would cease to be Spurgeon if I yielded. So he's saying, keeping the Sabbath is synonymous with being a Spurgeon. And if I uh, continue to have us meet here and and not follow through on my word and, and pretend it's not a big deal, then uh, it would be like me going back on my heritage. He continues, I neither can nor will give way in anything in which I know I am right. And in the defense of God's holy Sabbath, the cry of this day is, arise, let us go hence. So let's leave. And history shows that uh, God blessed his convictions and really cursed the owners of the Surrey Garden Music Hall because it wasn't successful. They lost money, eventually closed, and the Surrey Garden Music Hall uh, was condemned and uh, it was torn down. Uh, the heyday for it was when Spurgeon's congregation was renting it, and they ran them off by wanting to try to get more money by opening up on the Sabbath.
So that's just one example because I think in today, our inclination to be more pragmatic and say, look at all these people are being reached. Look at all these people who are being saved, 10,000 people. And now we're going to go down to only three to 4,000. A lot of these people can't come. And, and, and we would probably not make the same, uh, make, make the same decision as Spurgeon, but Spurgeon, he was not pragmatic. He was theological. He said, no, this is wrong. We're not going to, we're not going to promote those who are doing wrong. So that's one example. Another example is uh, a trial in the Free Church of Scotland. So uh, in the 1840s, it was like 1843, you had the Church of Scotland uh, split and a free church, which wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, kept up by state taxes, branched off from it. And this Free Church of Scotland grew and and they have a general assembly meeting every year. And in May of, of 1866, they had their general assembly meeting. And there was a case dealing with uh, Sabbath breaking that was on appeal from uh, the, uh, a presbytery. Now, Spurgeon was present at this general assembly meeting in, in Edinburgh because they had invited him to come to speak about missions. And here's the case. There was a printer who worked for a newspaper, and he uh, would go to church Sunday morning, but then he would go to uh, his print office and be there uh, from like 1 till 1 in the morning, so 12 hours. So his uh, local elders told him that this was wrong and, he, and that this was breaking the Sabbath. He argued that it was a work of necessity. Uh, he appealed it to the General Assembly, and this became a trial that took place, and I, it was published in the local newspaper, the minutes of the trial. It's quite fascinating. He was arguing his case, and one of the things he was saying as well, you ministers, you read the newspaper on Monday. <laughs> How do you think it got printed? And then he even pointed out, Mr. Spurgeon, he's right there. He preached yesterday, and it and his sermon is in the paper, and people laughed and stuff. Well, at the end, they ba they basically they didn't excommunicate him. They said we need to just instruct him more. But one of the issues that was happening is that these printers uh, would take Saturday off so that they could get on the train and go to the coast. Because remember, trains have come up upon the scene uh, starting the eighteen twenties. Uh, and then it kept multiplying. He, even in, in the United States, we had trains during the Civil War, and the North and the South used them against each other to uh, move troops. You had the Transcontinental Railroad that was completed under Lincoln. So you have this new technology that's being placed in a Sabbatarian context. How are people using this? How are, what are, what are the, the temptations, and how are people going to apply it? So it was really easy to jump on a train on Friday or, or Saturday morning, go to the beach, maybe an hour or two away, spend time, come back on Sunday and go to church. And then the work that you could have done on Saturday, instead you do it Sunday afternoon and evening because it'd be wrong for you to go to, go to the beach then. And that was what was taking place. So Spurgeon actually came to a different conclusion. Instead of, saying, yeah, he, just, he, he needs to be retaught. He said this, if any error had been made, well, this is uh, Pike summarizing a friend of Spurgeon. He said, if any error had been made, Mr. Spurgeon thought it to have been on the side of leniency. So that really gives you a picture of, uh, of what Spurgeon thought about this case and, and Sabbath breaking that he, this man was not doing a good job of guarding his time. Instead of working on Saturday, he was playing on Saturday and then working on Sunday. And it wasn't just for a couple hours. He, he was spending 12 hours to do that. I want to give one more example of a Sabbath controversy. And there are plenty um, that can be given. This is the Strom Ferry Riot of 1883. 
and Spurgeon weighs in on this riot after it takes place. So here's what happened. You had East Coast fishermen from Scotland go around to the West Coast. The West Coast fishermen are striking on like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. The East Coast fishermen, they don't strike, but they go and fish. Well, Saturday is over and have all this fish. They want to get it to the market in London to be sold Monday morning. So how do you get it to the market? Well, you need to load it Sunday morning at the Strom Ferry Station on the railroad cars so it can be shipped down to London. Well, as they were trying to do this, these West Coast fishermen, about 200 of them, come and create a riot and take over the railway station. So they can't do it. They stop them saying, you're a Sabbath breaking. Local authorities come and they arrest about a dozen of them. And then those men are not released. They're still in jail for three to four months. Uh, I go more into the detail of what, of what goes on in the book, but uh, ministers of Scotland who are, you know, Sabbatarian, they, 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 they have meetings and, and call upon the government officials to release uh, these men. Although they would say they took the law into their own hands, their, their fervency should be commended. Even comes up as a topic in Parliament at a committee meeting. And Spurgeon weighs in on it in his Sword in the Trial magazine. And here's what he says about the men who rioted to stop Sabbath breaking uh, in 1883 uh, because of this fish that needed to be get to London. He says this, we feel bound at this, our earliest opportunity to record our protest against the continued imprisonment of the men who endeavored to prevent the public breach of the Sabbath at Strom, at Strom Ferry. So he's on their side. You need to release these men. He continues, whatever their error, they meant to do right. No one has ever hinted that they had any selfish or sinister motive. They conceived that God's law was about to be broken and they stepped in to prevent it. It is true that they were violating the law of the land and going far beyond their province and trying to compel others to be as regardful as the Sabbath as themselves. So he's saying, they took an authority that only the government has to enforce the laws. They did do that. They, they, broke, they broke that law. But then he says, but surely for this wonderful offense, they have already suffered enough. He called it a wonderful offense. Um, the reason why, because he saw their zeal uh, for keeping God's fourth commandment. And while they went about it the wrong way, he was happy that they actually cared. Whereas so many people um, do not care uh, or have not tried to do that. He also says, we wish we had a people in England good enough to be capable of this scotch crime. The crime of fearing God so much as to use violence for the preservation of the day of rest. Wow. <laughs> so he's, in his context, the, he, he thinks English Christians are... are really don't care much about it. And he's happy that the Scottish Christians do, even though they, they crossed the line, at least uh, they had good motives. I think wow is a, a very appropriate term in light of what you just shared, Dr. Ray. This has been a terrific conversation. I'm so grateful for all the work you've done in researching this very fascinating subject uh, and Spurgeon's ministry and his own convictions and we definitely want to encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy of your book on Spurgeon's Sabbatarianism as soon as possible. Um, but maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you, you've already mentioned how the the theme of the Sabbath and, and Spurgeon's convictions about the Sabbath, they really underlie uh, the, 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 the big picture or the, the totality of his sermons. And, and it's not really like a extensive development of the Sabbath at, at any particular point. But are there any sermons that you would say are, are most extensive or is there a series of sermons that our listeners could perhaps go to to to, to read how Spurgeon would have dealt with this issue from the pulpit? Uh, I think I think just some 
some direction here might be of use to those who want to look into this further in regards to sermon uh, the sermons that were preached by Spurgeon. Yeah, let me get some sermons and I'll give some other uh, resources too. Most of the sermons here that I'm going to give are dealing with the law because if you get the law right, then the Sabbath flows from that. So, for example, uh, in volume one, sermon number 37, uh, there's the sermon Law and Grace. And these sermons are online. If you go to SpurgeonGems.org, they have PDF files. So you can just search and find these and, and read them immediately. Volume 28 has three sermons that I would point to. Uh, number 660 is on the perpetuity of the law of God. Uh, so looking at the moral law, sermon 1684, Feed My Lambs, a Sabbath school sermon. This is getting into the application because he was big on Sabbath schools and encouraging people to work and to do good, to do ministry on the Sabbath. It's not a day of inactivity. So you're going to get that thrust in that sermon of don't be inactive. Use the gift God has given you. Minister to others. That's what the Sabbath was created for. Also in volume 28, uh, number 687, talking about the law written on the heart, dealing with the fact that there is a moral law and that that is uh, the same law that, that was written on the heart is, is summarized in the Ten Commandments so that this is above and uh, the Old Covenant. It's not just in the Old Covenant, but it's something that all of us know and are aware of. And uh, finally, there's another one in volume 32, number 1879, a plain man's sermon that would be uh, helpful as well. But there isn't one sermon where he just goes and for, for 45 minutes and gives his apologetic for the Sabbath. So I would suggest looking at chapter 12 of his commentary on the book of Matthew. It's very short his comments, but you'll see uh, how he's thinking through the different works. Also in my book, I have an appendix and it lists book reviews. So he had a monthly magazine called The Sword and the Trowel and each one he would uh, do book reviews of books that he has read and whether commend them or, or say stay away from them or in between. And he did about 15 or 16 book reviews that I found on books that dealt with either the Ten Commandments or the Sabbath. And they're just about a paragraph in length. And if you read those, uh, that's in the back of my book, you will get a great understanding of what he believed about the Sabbath. And, and I, I commend that to you as, as a way to, to get a flavor of, of what Spurgeon said. But you, you are right. It's, it's more taking these different threads and bringing them together because uh, he didn't uh, write a treatise on the Sabbath. He didn't have sermons that were specifically on the Sabbath. It's just woven throughout all of his work. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful to know. And uh, I agree with Dewey. This has been an excellent conversation with you, Dr. Ray. Very helpful, very informative. Uh, we want to give you the opportunity to give our audience the last word uh, on this conversation. So what final thoughts or encouragements related to Spurgeon's forgotten Sabbatarianism do you have? My final thought is joy. He saw the Sabbath as a day of joy. And we, we've discussed here a lot of prohibitions, but that it should be seen as a gift that we get to, without guilt, focus on God for a whole day. We can put put our cares of the world, the cares of Monday, uh, away and, and just come and worship, hear God's word, uh, gather in prayer, encourage one another in godly conversation, sit down and talk to our children, catechize them, uh, read the Bible with them, uh, go and do ministry to others, whether Sunday school or uh, going to the nursing home and ministering to people there who are saints who don't get to hear the word of God, or going and visit, visiting someone in the hospital, on and on it goes. That This is a time that we have that's been given by God, and it is an appetizer for heaven. The eternal Sabbath will continue to go on and on. Now, there may be some who will listen to this who have come to Sabbatarian convictions, and that the tendency early on is to talk about what you shouldn't do and focus on those things, and especially among pastors, 
that can be something that comes out in the pulpit where you really c- come down hard. And I would just say, if, if you are one who promotes and adheres to the Christian Sabbath, that if you're going to win someone to our position, we need to, to win them by focusing on joy. When I was, uh, before I was saved, if someone said, every Sunday you're going to watch football, Oh man, that'd be great. That that would not be a burden. I'm gonna watch NFL football every day, every Sunday, from morning to evening, and that's what I did from noon until ten. I watched football, and no one put a gun to my head to do it. No one said you have to do it. No one said this is part of what God wants you to do. It was something I wanted to do. I love to do. Well, we who are believers, who are redeemed, who who have the Holy Spirit in us, how much more should we want to? Worship God. Draw near to him in his word. Now, there are temptations where we certainly fail and we just admit that and say, well, that just shows where I need to grow. But that should be the, the longing of every Christian's heart and that it should give us joy. It's good to go to the house of the Lord. It's good to be with God's people. It's good to hear the word of God preached. It's good to sing with other men and women and boys and girls these wonderful, precious truths of God. It's good to be able to have time to pray for the cares and needs of my family and of the the country and of the church. These are all wonderful things, and that should be something that uh, we would want to do, and God has given us time to do it. But if we don't keep that time set aside, then we don't do it. And then we miss out on this great blessing that is uh, preparing us for heaven. A terrific way of drawing this episode to a conclusion, Dr. Ray. Thank you so much for uh, discussing this fascinating subject with us. It's Monday as we record this episode. and. As you just conclude with those words of, of joy and, and being able to observe the Christian Sabbath, I'm already looking forward uh, to this upcoming Lord's Day uh, some six days from now. So thank you again for coming on to our show. We wish you nothing but the best in all of your ministry endeavors moving forward. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And, and to our listeners, we want to thank you again for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. And until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless.